The following message is brought to you by Balsamic. Balsamic have decided to support the SAS district community by donating their sponsored airtime to some of our listeners. This episode is sponsored by Bcast, a podcast hosting software for marketers by marketers, where they help you grow social engagement, traffic, and revenue with a podcast. Three features that I really, really like about Bcast is one, their auto opt-in feature, which is a seamless process for converting listeners into leads. Number two is their audio inserts, where they allow you to add call to actions, advertisements to your episode backlog in a few clicks. And finally, I really like their transcription features, which automatically transcribes each episode and adds written content to your site notes for SEO growth. If you're looking to supercharge the growth of your podcast, head over to bcast.fm to learn more about their offer. If you'd like to receive a promo code for Balsamic or even just thank the folks at Balsamic for supporting our community, please check out our show notes where we include a link to that promo code specifically for the SaaS district community. Thank you all. Everyone, this is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to reduce churn, optimize your pricing, and grow your subscription for your SaaS business. Today, we have our special guest, Patrick Campbell, joining us. Patrick yeah, is the CEO. Oh, sorry, sorry, Patrick. That's all right. Patrick is the CEO of ProfitWell, previously known as Price Intelligently, a software solution for subscription model companies. Uh, with their monetization and retention strategies, they provide free turnkey, turnkey subscription financial metrics for over 8,000 successful companies. Prior to ProfitWell, Patrick led strategic initiatives for Boston-based Gemvara and was an economist at Google and the U.S. Department of Defense. So welcome, Patrick. Glad to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. So I, I'm a huge fan. I absolutely love ProfitWell. We use it for our own SaaS companies and I share with everybody that they need to get using it right now. Um, so we use it to analyze our MRR, our churn and help forecast our churn. Uh, so for those in our audience who maybe haven't used it before, how does ProfitWell monitor the churn rate of the customer base and how does your predicting model uh, work and differentiate from some of your competitors? Totally. I'm going to tell you all the secrets here. Let's so here it. we go. <laughs> I think... Uh, yeah, so so the basic idea is with when it comes to churn, obviously there's you know the most basic calculations, right? Where you take mm-hmm. essentially cash you had at the beginning of the month, you know, and the end of the month, put them on top of each other, and then go from there um, for the period that you're going after. And so for us, what has been really kind of fascinating is we've been very obsessed with with how do we reduce churn, right? Like how do we actually reduce it? And this is going to be a little bit off the path that that I think your your question originally was going on, but. What actually happened is we started realizing that the best way for us to be able to predict and be able to help reduce churn was to have as many companies as possible using ProfitWell. And that's kind of where the freemium model came into play, where we can actually study all of this data and aggregate and then come up with this unified theory of subscription growth, part of which has to do with churn. And so what we've done, at least right now, and this is about to get you know even more powerful towards the end of the year here, is we actually have a couple of different models models that take into account not only globally what's going on um, with churn. So obviously a lower ARPU product is naturally going to have higher churn, higher uh, average revenue per user is going to have 
uh, lower churn, but also verticalizes it because we have over 20,000 companies on Profile now and takes into account the individual company's um, data as well. And so we put all of that together. We have a couple different models and then we're constantly like applying those models to the company's numbers in order to basically figure out like where is churn going to be and then ultimately how we can help kind of get in between that and reduce that churn. So I think that was a little bit more than maybe you were looking for, but hopefully that's a, a little bit yeah. more helpful than just the generic answer to the question. And that was that was that was fantastic. Um, so there's there's different many different kind of models, right? To calculate churn, people get kind of confused: net churn, user churn, revenue churn, and then they also run you know get complicated cohort analysis. Um, what method is you know best to estimate the churn rate depending on the is is it depend on the business model, whether you're B two B or direct to consumer, um, or what should we really be focused in tracking? Yeah, it's a good question because I think that a lot of times we lose sight of metrics and analytics are only useful if you're going to use them. Right. And I think for most uh, most businesses just starting out, and I would argue to a to a good size, you know, even you know up to about a hundred million, like the standard method for calculating churn makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. I think once you once you kind of get to a little more sophistication, which might happen before a hundred million, hopefully it does happen before a hundred million, <laughs> um, you start to realize that there's dozens of ways you could calculate churn. Um, I think we wrote an article once that said, "Hey, here are the 43 different ways that we found to calculate churn, and why you should just." use the simple one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is, is because if you're more sophisticated, meaning you have analysts or you're using tools like ProfitWell and stuff like that, um, and you understand your numbers and you want to get to a truer sense of churn, um, then you should make it more complicated. So if I'm a, um, a box of the month club, like Blue Apron, for instance, um, everyone, you know, in the public markets, you know, likes to, uh, you know, talk crap about Blue Apron because they're comparing it to Zoom. These companies and their churn rates should not be compared because Blue Apron probably should really start their real churn probably two months in because it's such an acquisition-focused product and we know there's going to be a bunch of churn. Mm-hmm. And Zoom should be you know, looked at as a very traditional um, B2B SaaS company. And so I think right. that's the big thing. And, and to give you some more tactical nature, um, I already alluded to this, but it depends on kind of your buyer, right? So if you find out that your buyer is um, you know, a lot more episodic, well, then maybe those customers that come back every three months and you can kind of know that with a good level of certainty, maybe you don't count them in your churn or maybe that you put another like line on the report that you're, you know, distributing to your investors or your board um, rather than kind of just reporting that one number. But I think that also Mm -hmm. shows a different, one other problem that I just alluded to is you always need to go deeper. I think an aggregate number is not useless. It's good for looking over time and obviously improving and using as kind of like a God metric. Yeah. But ultimately you have to go deeper and deeper. What's the churn of this plan versus that plan? What is the retention of this plan versus that plan? And I'm a big fan of looking at um, either gross logo churn. So basically how many customers are leaving Mm -hmm. um, and also net revenue retention and then breaking that down so you can find what are the pockets of customers who are amazing for your business and what are the ones that are not so good and then get more of the former and get less of the latter. Wow, that, that, that's actually super helpful. Um, so you, you guys have all this data set. You talked about, the, I think it's called the ProfitWells Data Intelligence. Can you share some kind of data points on how you know, COVID has impacted and affected churn and revenue? So specifically for B2B SaaS in the last few months, and are you seeing certain industries that are, are growing and what, what, you know, how much are they growing and others, how much are they shrinking in, in general? Yeah, totally. So when COVID hit, we, we like every subscription business because we ourselves are a SaaS company. Yeah. Um, we freaked out 
because, uh, you know, smart people like you were going yeah. on Twitter and half of you were saying, oh, the world's ending. Um, you know, you're not, don't expect revenue for four years. And then the other half of you were basically saying, um, you know, everything's going to be fine in the next three months. And whenever you see that, I've learned as an entrepreneur, you have, you, re, you have to realize no one's right because no one knows what's going on. So someone may be right, but no one really knows what's going on when you have that phenomenon. And so we came out with something called the ProfitWell Index, um, which was basically we took the 20,000 companies on top of ProfitWell um, who had plugged in their Stripe, Braintree's, or Recurly accounts to, to get their free metrics and basically looked at, you know, how were different verticals growing or not. And with B2B SaaS specifically, um, the market as a whole basically like kind of stopped and went flat for a good three to four weeks. And a lot of us thought that was because people stopped buying. In reality, mm. that's not what happened. Instead, everyone went through their balance sheet and just looked at um, what are the things I can cancel? What are the things I can get rid of? And so there was a good amount of churn that happened. But mm -hmm. then something really, really fascinating three to four weeks in um, happened where everything kind of, I don't want to say got back to normal, but people started acting a lot more normally. And then all of a sudden we just started growing again where new revenue was really good. Um, and then churn was kind of normal, if that makes sense. So there was just this initial hit. And I think that hit came from probably what you would expect. Um, you basically saw um, anything having to do with going outside. Um, if you were helping restaurants, helping gyms, these types of things, they all got wiped. Um, a lot of them were able to recover, which was really great. And then obviously the, the companies that were doing really well, like the Zooms, project management tools, these types of things were just crushing it. And so we really like to look at that middle group, which we kind of fall into. Like, what are the companies that aren't necessarily getting crushed or aren't necessarily doing really well? What are they doing to do well? Um, and that was really, what was really interesting to study. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think that we hear that quite a bit is that uh, I think repeatedly is that, you know, that smaller SMBs just kind of a lot of them just decided to pause and end it. And a lot of people just lost like their bread and butter. But then a few weeks in, then you get starting all these like bigger clients coming in and, and accelerating the growth to make up for it. So that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a I think it's a great opportunity for most brands that are probably, you know, involved with you guys, because um, at the very least, even though things were better than we thought they were going to be and probably aren't terrible for better or for worse among SaaS. I mean, obviously good for all of us, but you know, maybe like that's a little weird when the market, like other things in the market are doing so poorly and there's, you know, so many unemployed folks. But sure. I think that one thing that was really kind of fascinating was looking at how all of these companies um, started kind of attacking incumbents because the one thing that happened is that everyone reconsidered their stack. Everyone reconsidered the software that they're using and they're still considering, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it was, hey, maybe not what's going to bring us more revenue because we just had this expectations that our revenue isn't you know, really going to happen this year, which I think is a not good expectation because I think everyone's doing actually all right, if not really well. Mm -hmm. But everyone was looking for, oh, can I save costs with this? Can we do something better? And so the best companies out there, they were taking advantage of this by going to the, the customers of their competitors and basically saying, hey, like we'll give you this for free until your competitor contracts up or we'll give you two free months or we'll do a whole host of things because everyone was reconsidering it. And it's, some, it's a bandwagon you can still hop on, right. um, but I think it's one of those things that, you know, God forbid another you know, downturn ever happens. Like it's a really good thing to do when, when that initially happens. Makes makes sense, yeah. So, I mean, at the core of your your product of what you built was, you know, how do you solve churn? I think that was what you initially why you built ProfitWell. Um, you know, we get a lot of companies that approach us, or even in our portfolio companies that we work with. Their their main focus B two B focusing on SMBs, and we see you know double digit monthly churn rate, especially you know, when you're focusing on SMBs. Um, 
I get asked this, and those things we're always learning to try and apply ourselves. What are some suggestions you would start with to help you know start reducing that monthly churn? Where, where should we start looking at? Yeah, the thing to realize with churn is that you have two major categories of churn. One category is what I like to call strategic churn. And this is essentially the churn that has to do with your product. And there's there's really no tactic to fix this churn. It's about 60 to 80% of your churn, depending on the type of business that you're in um, and how sophisticated your product team's been. But this is the stuff that involves building the right features, finding the right type of customer, all these things that you got to do research and you got to do, it's not difficult work, but it is work to kind of figure out and, you know, kind of vector over time to reduce that churn as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But I think that what's really kind of fascinating is that there's a 40% or down to about 20%, depending on the business of churn that I like to call mechanical churn. Okay. Um, and this is churn that people don't optimize because they don't spend enough time on retention or pricing. Um, You know, just in general, they're spending all their time acquiring customers, which obviously is something important. But that mechanical churn is actually super solvable. And these are things like credit card and payment failures. Um, 20 to 40% of your churn right now is credit card to payment failures. Like it's that high. Um, And these are people where, yes, there's a certain portion of them, this is their excuse to leave you in the first place. But you should be recovering, you know, 60 to 80% of those, those people who, you know, have their credit card failed. And you're only recovering probably 20 to 30%, depending on the type of vertical you're in. So that's a huge piece of, it doesn't take a ton of work. um, But it's one of those things where if you put even the basics in, you can chip away at that problem and reduce your churn overall. Another thing is term optimization. What really frustrates me sometimes is a lot of B2B companies, the only time they ask me to get on an annual plan or a quarterly or six month plan is when I sign up which is before I've even used the product. Therefore, I don't even know if I want this on a quarterly, a six-month or annual basis. And so you have to target those people. You should do this algorithmically, but really it's people between two months and nine months of using your product, um, mm-hmm. all things being equal, that you should go out to them and say, hey, you can get a free month for you know basically an annual plan. Um, or, hey, here's this offer that you can get for that annual plan. And then other aspects of mechanical churn is your offboarding. Um, a lot of people don't realize that once someone clicks that cancel button, there's a lot of things you can do to prevent that cancellation. Of mm-hmm. course, a lot of people who hit that button are going to end up canceling, but there's a good 10 to 25% of those who with the right salvage offer, hey, we'll give you an extra month to stick around and you know fall in love with us. You, know, you can use some cheeky copy. Um, or just like, hey, like you put that you didn't, you weren't able to get a hold of someone and that's why you're churning. Well, here's a little like Calendly scheduler where you can actually schedule time with someone to talk to them. So there's just Mm -hmm. a lot of things you can do for that 20 to 40% of mechanical churn that I think not enough people are doing. Um, And I think it's because they're, they're only focused on the strategic churn when obviously the mechanical stuff is a lot easier to solve than what's the right product, who's the right customer. Yeah, I agree with that. So I I like that term, the mechanical churns, the first time I've heard about it. Um, you know, optimizing pricing, I think that's, that's a whole, another, another co- question around that. But I want to also ask about, you know, going up market. Is that a strategy you've seen um, SaaS companies look at? Like, for, would you consider that mechanical churn? Um, like, say, you know, you're focusing um, SMBs, do you go mid-market? And, and you know, because obviously they, they usually stick around longer, right? Versus SMBs. Yeah. yeah. So traditionally, you have, you know, it's all trade-offs, right? So I, I think that when you do go up market, when you have a higher price product, um, or a longer sales cycle, traditionally your churn is not as bad 
because you have higher CAC, essentially. You have a right. salesperson who's talking them through everything. Maybe they're, you're only selling annual plans. That's what HubSpot did. Um, and your churn is better when you only have annual plans than if you had monthlies, right? Um, and so I think that it's one of those things where going up market certainly can help reduce your churn, but it might open up a whole host of other problems, right? Because all of a sudden it's like building a sales team. Yeah, there's a lot of people who've done it, but it's not easy. You know, it's not something that's terribly hard. It just takes a lot of work. Um, and so I think that what, what I fear sometimes with um, people who go up market to reduce churn um, rather than people who start up market, right, which is a good, good number of people, is that those people who kind of go up market to hide churn, they ultimately, like the chicken comes home to roost, as they say, at some point because mm. they're going to have to solve that churn at some point. Um, and so your sales team can only help you so much, but that strategic churn... It, it, it comes down to you got to know the right customer. You got to get the right product. You got to get the right onboarding. You got to do a lot of these things that if you're not spending a good amount of time doing, like no amount of tactics are going to solve for it. It makes, it makes sense. Um, and then, you know, talking about optimizing pricing, I think this is something you, you, you've, you speak a lot about and I think you, you know, probably an expert in. Um, you know, you have paper usage, you have lifetime access, you have, you know, annual uh, contract that allows companies to receive the payment upfront. Um, versus getting the MRR, which you know also investors love to see. Um, or of course, it, uh, yeah. <laughs> how do you make? You know, how do you suggest making this subscription model more attractive to you know the customer? And you know, have you seen that impact the customer receives from you know, receiving the service or the product? If, if anything, you've seen there. Yeah, say that. Say that one more time. Yeah, like um, <laughs> does the pricing adjust how? the customer receives the, or perceives the, the service or product oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, absolutely. I think yeah. though that it's much more complicated than most people think. And what I mean by that is um, your price, you know, $10, $100, whatever it is, that is only one piece of your monetization. Mm -hmm. um, and if you really think about your business, and it doesn't matter what you're selling, like everything you're doing is basically driving someone to a point of conversion or justifying the product or the price that you're offering them. And so things like your value propositions and positioning affect the perception of the willingness to pay of your product. Um, who you're targeting, that's also perception. Mm -hmm. I can target someone with a luxury product who is just never going to purchase that product. And it doesn't mean they magically have the willingness to pay that I want them to have, right? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the features, functionality, how you structure it. Are you charging per usage? Are you charging per user? These types of things. And so what I like to say with, with monetization is that in the early days, the actual number is not that important. Okay. Um, figuring out, are you a $10 product, a $100 product, a $1,000 product? That's important. But all that other stuff um, is a lot more important um, to basically nail because that's the stuff that's going to get the right customer with the right product at the right price. Mm. And if somebody is you know, doing kind of what HubSpot did before, right? They're charging annually or say maybe on a quarterly basis on annual contracts. Would you suggest them to go back the other way to MRR? Um... I think that if you are, how do I put it? If you mm. are, um, if you're a company as large as HubSpot, you're going to report ARR. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's just kind of how it works. Um, they might report on some level internally about MRR when they're looking at new products that they're launching. Um, but typically, you know, when you look at something like MRR versus ARR, like you can still report ARR even though you only charge monthly, right? Yeah. Um, now you have to factor in churn and it gets a little more complicated and all these other things. But I think it's one of those things where it's more important to just like stick with how you want to report. Now, should HubSpot offer up monthly products? Um, 
That's a bigger question, right? Mm. And I think that for some of their products, yes, but for other products, no. Because if you think about the time to value, if I'm setting up their marketing suite, it's, it's a lot to set up. Like I might not actually publish something for 45 days or I might not send an email for 45 days because I got to get everything set up and I got to get permissions and all this other stuff. Whereas some of their sales products, like the time to value is like, you know, a day, not even, right? right like I just right. want to send sequences or I just want to do something. So I think it just really depends on the time to value of your product and the annual plans that they're selling for their marketing product. I think that's really important because again, like, they need those first three months for someone to actually get set up and then the next nine months for them to see how valuable it is so that they renew on ongoing. So yeah, just some things to think about. Mm, got it. So I think, I think that's when you're more focused on like, you know, enterprise or mid-level where there's a lot more integration, onboarding, and before you actually start using it and seeing the value, it probably makes more sense to go on that annual contract, right? Yeah. Totally. And I think it's also like, what does your churn rate look like? Um, if mm. I was early on and... You know, I, I don't know. It's hard. Like there's so many what ifs and also like different layers to these types of things. But I think that one thing to kind of think about is a high price or an annual contract. Um, you, you, your volume might be less because people aren't kicking the tires, but that might be a good thing. Like mm-hmm. I kind of want to make it expensive to see who really cares about this problem in order for me to like sit with them and talk with them constantly um, in order to solve that problem further. Because again, once you reach that, I, I don't want to scale too quickly beyond my churn because all of a sudden you're going to get a lot of false positives of success. And then all of a sudden, again, that churn rate's going to catch up with you. And all of a sudden you're at 10 million and can't grow because every time you grow, all that money's leaving pretty quickly. So I think that that's why like sometimes those constraints or those high prices are important, not because that's where you're going to keep things, but that's where you're going to get the, the people who care the most so you can study them essentially. Hmm. So if you're comparing those, so you have, you know, uh, both factors, pricing on one side, you have churn on the other side. We're trying to optimize that balance there. Uh, what are some churn bench- benchmarks we should be aiming for? So I hear different numbers, uh, but depending on our monthly pricing model, right? I know so SMBs, you're under $100 a month or 200 you should be here, uh, you know, 500 1000 Like, do you have some, some ranges you can share with us that we should be aiming for? Yeah, always lower. Uh, <laughs> so I think... Uh, <laughs> I, I think the problem with benchmarks a lot of time is I, I can give you like what actually, at least for like, I think it's like some six, 7,000 companies, I can actually give you the numbers where people are at. But if I was an investor or I was looking at those companies, I would say that like there's a good number of them that are not successful, right? Okay. And so I think that the thing to think about is ARPU or the size of the pricing that they're, they're you know, going after is a good correlative piece. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is if you have a low ARPU, if you have like a sub $100 product, you know, you might be looking at churn rates, you know, on a median, and I'm just pulling these numbers up so I can tell people the real numbers. Sure. Um, you might be looking at a median of, you know, something around 7 to 8% of monthly revenue churn. Now, a lot of you might be saying like, oh my gosh, how do they even build a business? Well, you have to realize that when you're in a high volume environment, assuming that their CAC is relatively low um, and their expansion revenue, there's there's a good path to expansion revenue, you can have a really good business with, I don't know if quite seven to eight percent, but you could have a really good business with, you know, three, four percent monthly gross revenue churn as long as your net revenue churn um, or your net revenue retention, I should say, um, is above a hundred percent. So I think mm-hmm. that's a thing to think about. And then as you get higher in price point, typically the churn goes down. Once you get up to, you know, I don't know, thousand dollar a month, five thousand thousand dollar a month, like you really need your churn to be below 2% um, mm. in order to, to be viable um, because your expansion revenue, like your volume can't protect you if that makes sense. 
Yeah, makes sense. So if you're under two percent, I think you're probably in a, in a good position, right? To to probably scale and would you say? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does depend. I think that there are pl- there's some businesses I've seen that have four to five percent churn and they're like ten dollar a month products. Like think about Blue Apron again, right? Like so Blue yeah. Apron, um, you know, box of the month club, right? Like their churn rates are pretty high, but when you look at their ninety day plus retention, right. it's actually really good. And there's a lot of mm. things they can do to take that 90 day plus retention and move that line up right. um, through expansion revenue and things like that. And so it's, it's, it's hard to like put like a definitive number on it. I think if you're under 2% gross monthly churn, everything's great. Um, mm. You know, like I think you want that to be as close to zero as possible. I know for us, we, we really worked and our retained product, just given the nature of what it does is basically 0% churn, um, which is great. You know, mm-hmm. the only time we get churn is when people kind of like, you know, basically go out of business. And the, but the reason for that is it's completely pay for performance. So we have more contraction and more expansion, but we have less churn, which is something that I would take as a business. Makes sense. And I guess that's why a lot of companies offer the, those trials, right? So you're saying, you know, it takes two months before they start realizing if they were to charge them, they probably would get all that drop off and then they'd get the good clients afterwards. But I think with Blue Apron it might be a little different to give a trial for two months. Um, yeah, you so can't really it, do that with food. <laughs> exactly. Here's I think, there's, I think it's illegal to give away free food as a business. I'm fairly certain because I remember we worked with one of their competitors and we were like, oh, have you ever tried a freemium like type plan, right? Because mm-hmm. they, I mean, they raise so much money and their whole thing is just to acquire emails basically. Right. Um, and they, I think they said like they were trying to do it, but also there's some legal questions and I don't remember digging deeper into it. Hmm. I, I wonder, because I may look at something like an Uber, Uber did that, I guess they give you credits. You know, I can think of like an Uber Eats where you give you a credit. You're not technically giving them food. That's probably a Yeah, it's like a coupon more than anything. And that's yeah. what most of them do. They're just like one free week of food if you buy two or something like that, that type of thing. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's not, not, that's not my expertise. I'm not a lawyer. Don't, don't take any legal advice from me. <laughs> me neither. We'll pass on that one. Um, when, if somebody's looking to increase their pricing, so like I said, you know, maybe $10 a month, they want to go up to go up market. Um, how, should, how often should we be increasing pricing and specifically for growing a B2B SaaS business? And uh, totally. what's your suggested steps to properly roll that out without losing new clients or you know, losing some of the, the old clients as well, right? Yeah. So very good question. Very long question in terms mm. of answer. So I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as possible. So um, always exceptions, but uh, you should be raising your price, all things being equal, at least once a year. Um, twice a year, if you're really moving quickly, you know, we talked about HubSpot. HubSpot was just shipping so much up prior to the IPO. So every six months they were changing, they're upping their price. Now, you should be changing something about your pricing though every quarter. Um, and so there's a distinction there. A lot of people think like the only, the only lever I have with pricing is, you know, the number. And like we were saying before, no, there's, you know, how do we change up our discounts? Maybe we should move this feature into an add-on. Let's do price localization. Let's do, you know, there's a whole host of different things that you can do. And so I think the, the, the big thing to think about is you should be making changes and optimizing your pricing quarterly um, and then actually physically raising your price probably about once a year. Um, now, how do you actually, like, let's just say we're raising our price. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, I have some copy that I can send over. You can put in the show notes. But really, the, the big mistakes that I typically see is didn't do any research. Um, 
you have to do some research. You have okay. to go find out like where your, your pricing power is because sometimes people, they just incrementally raise the price when really they could have doubled the price, right? Now, doubling the price, there's a whole bunch of logistics um, that you have to figure out in order to actually do that. But again, you have to do some research as to where you should be raising your price. And most people, when they set their initial prices, they just kind of threw out a number and said, oh, well, let's just do this, right? And in reality, that was like terrible decision because you know they, they, they never actually tested it. And what a lot of companies find, and we find this with our pricing intelligently product um, that we've developed at ProfitWell is that basically you will see people where when you do the research, the current customer is willing to pay the least, whereas the person who's never heard of the brand but is a target customer is willing to pay the most. And they all think, oh, the data must be off. Well, no, it's because you've anchored your customers to a low price that you never tested. So the reason that's happening is because you actually should be charging more, but you're not, right? Mm, mm. And so um, do your research. Another thing is, is I'm not a big fan in B2B SaaS of um, giving legacy discounts. So keeping your existing customers on their old old price. Um, I think it's a really good thing for like your initial customers, but you know, and a lot of people, they're like, oh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do this because it's so good and everything. And it's like, it's really cute before 10 million, but you don't realize get from 10 to 100, you gotta raise prices in some way on your customers. And it's really hard to build another product um, mm-hmm. in order to raise prices on them, let alone like, you know, get that right product, that second product right. So um, get into a habit of raising customers. Now, the copy when you're sending these emails and things like that, um, I would be careful of raising prices more than 50% on any user and use your best judgment. I'm talking about going from, you know, 500 bucks to $5,000 rather than like a dollar to $2 kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the big reason for that is because um, customer satisfaction kind of tanks where even if their willingness to pay is there, it's just like a big jump. So sometimes if you've never done your pricing properly, you'll raise prices on initial or new customers and then all of your existing, you'll take three years to stair step it to where it needs to be. Um, And then the copy, again, make it about them, not about you. Mm -hmm. When you're communicating a price increase, like just make sure you're like, hey, um, you know, we've provided this much value. You've made this much money on our platform. You use this feature every day. Like actually pull that data to remind them and then ultimately say, hey, we're going to raise prices on everyone else. This is called a legacy discount. Um, but for you, because you've been so loyal, we'll keep you on your existing price for the next six months mm-hmm. um, and then we'll raise your price. That's a really good thing that kind of diminishes them getting aggravated. Um, and then there's a bunch of other little fun things that we can get into, of course, but yeah, that's kind of the big thing is, is do your research, um, make sure that it's not impacting them, you know, a huge amount and do that over years if you need to. And then ultimately make sure the messaging is about them and their value, not about you. Like the worst email I've ever seen, and I see this a lot actually, oh, our costs went up. So we're raising prices. Like your mm. customer doesn't care about your costs. They care about their costs. So yeah, hopefully that's helpful. A little rambly, but hopefully there's, there's no, some good No, that was some gold in there. I, I think I heard, a, I can't remember this, where this quote from came from, but some MBAs, they look at some consultants, they, they look at a company and usually the, the their main uh, solution they offer is just, you know, double your price and that'll fix your problem, right? That's usually the solution, right? Oh, man. <laughs> Dude, the P, like look at what PE firms do. I like to study private equity firms because mm. they are, like people say they're soulless. I don't think that's entirely true, but that's also not a bad thing for what they're trying to do, right? Sure. And I'm going to get in trouble for saying that um, on all sides for that one. But I think the thing that I want to think, like they're, they're not emotional. That's not necessarily true either. Mm. They, they think about the business more as like a machine rather than like an emotional being. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is if you look at what they do once they buy a company, they have like 10 playbooks that they go through. 
One of them is always look at the pricing. And it's because they realize most companies have never done anything with it. So they know that they're going to buy the company and they're going to do these 10 playbooks. Three or four of them are going to work. The pricing one always works because no one ever did anything with their pricing before they bought it. And then all of a sudden, they're going to get their return and, and then some. And, and so I think that they're a good place to kind of study. And that's why they tinker with pricing a lot is because people aren't doing their research. That's uh, one of our playbooks. So, but I promise you, we're not soulless. So. <laughs> there you go. That's why I said it's not. Uh, it's not everything. But yeah, no, it's all good. Um, do you uh, do you ever suggest the other way to lower your prices? We do, and it mm. gets into some ethical dilemmas, right? Because people mm. don't want to lose that revenue, especially if they have good volume. Um, mm. But I think that. Um, sometimes it's the right thing to do. And normally, normally what you really think about, like if you remember your econ class from, you know, college or university or high school, you know, remember they showed that demand curve, right? And they basically said each point, that's like a price point, And then you get the revenue under the curve. Like really what you want is you want as many price points along that line as possible. And so what ends up happening is you have these entry points where maybe it's a very small amount of the product. And this is why we suggest using value metrics, right? Hey, if they're only using one user, they're only paying 10 bucks a month. Using a thousand users, they're paying many, many more times that, right? And so when you have that, you don't need to really worry about, are we, do we have a low enough price? Because typically you'll have that low entry point and you'll have a really, really high entry point. But for folks who aren't using value metrics, um, sometimes, yeah, like lowering your price will actually increase volume and then it nets out. I think the important thing to keep in mind here, especially for B2B SaaS is sometimes you can lower your price and you'll lose more customers. And mm-hmm. the reason is, is that software, it acts a little bit more like a, like a luxury purse or something like that, right? Like sometimes people are questioning the quality of it if it's too cheap. Yeah. So you have to be really careful. Um, when we work with a lot of companies that are in Europe or other locations, like the one example we use, I, I help out with a lot of incubators and things like that. And I was in Estonia of all places, um, basically uh, talking to a bunch of teams from Northern and Eastern Europe. And the Ukrainian team, they had this amazing product, but they were charging like $10 a month. The competitor of theirs, which is not a good way to like check, but it's a good gut check, was charging 200 bucks a month. Wow. And I was like, I guarantee you, you like even quadruple, if not quintuple your price, and you'll actually see more sales. Hmm. And they actually did it. And that's what happened because people were just looking at it and were like, you can't do what you say you're doing because this other peop- competitor who's a lot more well-known, they're charging a lot more for this. And it's not like they're coming in at 180 or something like that. Exactly. There's something, there must be something wrong here. They're missing something huge or missing, right? Yeah. Totally. What are, is there any other underrated strategies, whether it's around, you know, growth, pricing or churn that a, you know, SaaS business uh, isn't aware of that they can start applying today that you see often? Um, I think we didn't really talk about it too much. I mean, we did, we just did a little bit, but your value metric, you should be charging based on some sort of metric that you, you're providing that customer. So, and it's not just usage, everyone goes to usage, but it could be, um, like for retain our churn reduction product, we charge based on the amount of revenue we recover. Um, it's not a straight percentage. We have these little tiers that depending on how much we recover, um, we charge you. But I think it's one of those things where, um, yeah, it's just kind of fascinating in terms of like, that's the best way to price. And some, sometimes you're not going to be able to price directly on like the actual value, but mm-hmm. then you find a proxy for it per user, per thousand visits, whole host of things that you could be charging. But if you get everything else wrong, but you get that aspect of your pricing right, normally you'll be doing okay. Hmm. Yeah, it's always a, a, a gamble, right? When you're 
testing pricing, right? Because especially when you're trying to grow so quickly and then um, sometimes you can make the wrong move and maybe completely shift your, your you know, your pricing model and, um, you know, does the opposite effect. So I think, yeah, I guess you have to be, be kind of mindful around that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm super interested in uh, kind of the upcoming profit. Well, I think it's called Recur Network. Uh, can you yeah. share what, what we can expect for a launch date and what type of content we can expect there? Um, yeah, the launch date. I, mm. I made a mistake of saying a launch date a year ago and that <laughs> launch date was not right. So um, we, are, we are officially launching. It'll probably be an early Q4. Okay. Um, which we're pretty excited about. And, yeah. and what this is, just so folks know, is um, we've completely changed our go-to-market strategy to, to be content-based, but not just content in the traditional sense that you're thinking about it, but actually creating a media network that has multiple different shows and series, podcasts, video, um, and even just written series as well. And so um, we... We've been developing this basically over the past three years, not the network specifically, but working on shows, getting good at it, finding cost-effectiveness. And now we're... Um, in the process of kind of upscaling a lot of our content um, so that we can launch and, you know, be super proud of it. So yeah, that's coming. And, and the big reason for that, just because you have a lot of, you know, SaaS and subscription companies listening is um, it's just better for unit economics and it's better for building audience. Um, mm. It looks cool and it's, it is designed well and all that kind of fun stuff, but mm. um, basically building audience and podcasts as well as video have a much, much lower ch or uh, CAC um, customer acquisition costs than other traditional channels. And it also augments the sales and marketing team that you already have. So yeah, we're pretty excited about it. And so we have a couple of shows that I'm sure, you know, you've kind of seen some early versions of pricing page teardown. We have a bunch of stuff coming out on churn. So it's going to be a little weird to like see a network dedicated to the subscription world uh, yeah. rather than like sports or something like that. But we're excited about it. No, I I'm, I'm super excited, but it looks like, it's like the Netflix of, you know, for entrepreneurs. So if you, if you want something more. That's what we're more, trying to do. Is that, is look that a little vision? more like Hulu. Though. So our, our well, design like, is a little, little, probably a little too Hulu inspired, but that's all right. So as long as as addictive as Netflix, I'm sure you'll do well. <laughs> Let's go with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have any other favorite resources that you can share with the audience or they can learn about improving their pricing model or maybe reducing their churn? Uh, I think... Um, so we write a lot about this and I think some of the folks we're inspired by are like folks like Brian Balfour, um, good friend of mine, Heaton Shaw, good friend as well. Like these, these guys are, are really good about this stuff because they're very much in the trenches. I think there's, there's a lot of other content out there that's just kind of SEO-y, which is not bad. You know, we do SEO content as well, but it's not, um, it's not coming from experience as much as like those guys or our content. So I think my secret is always finding the people who maybe can't publish as much volume, but are the people actually in the trenches? Like I love following Brad Coffey, um, the head of strategy over at HubSpot's blog. He doesn't really publish that much, but every time he publishes, it's gold. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the types of folks that I like to find. Mm, kind of like uh, the Brian Dean as well from uh, Black Lincoln. I don't know if you yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah a lot of good stuff there. Cool. Uh, so this was great. Uh, Patrick, where can our audience get in touch with you and maybe learn more about using ProfitWell for their own SaaS company? Yeah, I'm just Patrick at profitable.com. 
Um, so feel free to email me if you have any questions, even if it's like, even if you're, um, I always say this and my sales team hates me for it, but, um, even if you just have a question and you're like, ah, I don't want to be sold or anything, that's totally fine. We publish so much content and we have actually, um, a lot of calls and stuff that we know are never going to convert built into our model. Mm -hmm. Um, just cause we want to evangelize and, and basically help as many folks as possible. So you have a question on pricing, churn, benchmarks, um, just let me know and I'll be able to send those out at Patrick at profitable.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Once again, Patrick, really glad to have you on today. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SaaS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.